Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Thank you so much to our online donors who make this podcast possible by giving at paradoxgiving.com. Today we are looking at Deuteronomy 15 yet again, and today's episode is entitled The Reparations of Deuteronomy. Last week, we discussed Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Today, we are looking at verses 12 to 15 of that same chapter. Before we begin, I want to offer two disclaimers before we go any further. The first disclaimer is that we are talking about the Bible today. While talking about the Bible is nothing new on the Paradox podcast, I'm pretty sure that at some point during this episode, you will be tempted to think that we are not talking about the Bible. Instead, you might think that we are talking about politics. I'm making this disclaimer because I want you to know that I have done my best to honor Deuteronomy 15, 12 to 15 with today's sermon. And I have to tell you that if I heard this sermon when I was 19 or 20 or 21, I guarantee you that I would have dismissed it as being too overtly political. But I have to tell you that Moses' words in Deuteronomy 15, 12 to 15 are political. So if you hear that voice in your mind during this episode today, then please just pause for a moment and remind yourself that this is a sermon about the Bible and specifically Deuteronomy 15. If you feel like this sermon is not practically applicable enough to you while you listen to this, then I encourage you to pause and ask the following questions. When was a time that a friend of mine today wronged me in the past? And what did they do to make it right? These questions are the implicit theme of today's sermon. Now, if you feel that this sermon does not apply to you, then may I encourage you to return back to these personal questions. And I hope that you will discover that there is a spiritual core to the writings of Deuteronomy and the words I will share with you during this episode. The second disclaimer is that you may be tempted to dismiss this episode because you have never heard a sermon preached on this topic before. Full disclosure from me, I've never heard a sermon on this topic before. I've never heard a sermon given on this passage before. Not only that, I've never preached on this topic before. And by the end of this sermon, I hope that you realize with me that the absence of this conversation from the majority of Christian pulpits is the problem that we are talking about in today's sermon. So with those two disclaimers, I want to begin our discussion in Deuteronomy 15 with a story that took place nine years ago in January. Lawmakers in the capital of Pennsylvania put forth Bill H.R. 535. This bill proposed that the state of Pennsylvania would refer to the rest of the calendar year in 2012 as, quote, the year of the Bible, close quote. This bill passed and lawmakers took to the streets to officially welcome people into the Keystone State's massive religious revival as sanctioned by the government. There's just one problem. 
not everyone in Pennsylvania views the Bible as an authoritative and inspired text. Less than six weeks after Bill H.R. 535 was passed, two groups, the American Atheists of Pennsylvania and the Pennsylvania Nonbelievers, rented a billboard in the suburbs of Harrisburg. On this billboard, they placed a degrading illustration of a black man in chains. Above this enslaved man, the billboard displayed the words of Paul from his letter to the Colossians in big, bold, capital letters. The words were, Slaves, obey your masters. Just underneath these words from Paul was the writings Colossians 3.22. And then in smaller letters, in the lower left-hand third of the billboard, one could read the following explanation for this billboard the verse, and the illustration. The explanation read, This lesson in Bronze Age ethics brought to you by the Year of the Bible and the House of Representatives in Pennsylvania. Now this billboard made just about everyone in Harrisburg upset. Citizens called the city asking for the billboard to be taken down. Christian citizens felt that it misrepresented the Bible. Black citizens felt that this billboard encouraged white supremacy, which, let's be clear, this billboard definitely encouraged white supremacy. And in the very first evening of the billboard's existence, someone snuck up to the billboard and vandalized it. Three days after the billboard went up, the city demanded that the billboard be taken down, which is really interesting because all of this occurred during the year of the Bible. And here is a billboard quoting the Bible, and in the year of the Bible, the government says, no, not that part of the Bible. <laughs> what happened here in Harrisburg? While this story is problematic and confusing and questionable, the fact is that the story says something about the way that we hold and understand the Bible today. Now, the Bible is a complex book that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Some people feel it is the inspired word of God, while others feel it is merely fairy tales. If we assume the very best about those lawmakers in 2012, then we must assume they had good intentions and had an eye fixed on the future. They were thinking about their state's trajectory 500 years down the road and said, you know what, if we could just have more Bible, then we could become a better people. Because when authors like Paul wrote words 2,000 years ago, these words can serve as a moral compass that we can depend on for centuries to come in the state of Pennsylvania. It was that thought process that led lawmakers to christen the calendar year in 2012 as the year of the Bible. However, for people outside of the Christian tradition, the year of the Bible sounded like oppression and erasure. Some atheists heard that this bill passed and groaned. Because the atheists knew that in the Bible, in those same writings of Paul, were some ideas that didn't push the state of Pennsylvania forward but instead dragged the state of Pennsylvania backward to a frightening past. 
One of those ideas is found in Colossians when Paul writes, slaves, obey your masters. And let's be clear, Paul actually definitely wrote those words. So when atheists rented space on a billboard, they held up one of the most embarrassing and backwards ideas in the Bible to say that the Bible wouldn't bring us forward, but would instead drag us backwards. In other words, the atheist billboard in Harrisburg's central argument is that the Bible is filled with regressive ethics. I use the word regressive intentionally. We are not talking about partisan ethics. We are not talking about popular ethics. We are not talking about conventional ethics. Instead, we are talking about regressive ethics. And an ethic is regressive when the ethic drags us back to a time of greater immorality. Specifically, in this case, back to a time when religion told slaves that their highest calling was simply to obey their masters. This is obviously a regressive ethic. So when lawmakers declared that 2012 is the year of the Bible, atheists immediately thought of the problematic regressive ideas within scripture and cried out, but we don't want to go back to what was before. We want to go forward. And the Bible will only take us backwards. Now, if you are a Christian and you hear these atheists' objection, you may strongly disagree. You may start to go into all of your defensive apologetics and break out your websites and call your pastors that tell atheists why the Bible should be trusted and why it is a moral compass for our lives today and for the centuries to come. But if that is you, I have to ask you a question. When you read Colossians 3.22, when Paul says, slaves, obey your masters, doesn't it make you uncomfortable? Doesn't it challenge you? Doesn't it challenge the way that you understand the Bible? Do you wish to yourself, man, the Bible would be better without this? So many Christians hold the Bible up as a moral light for a world covered in darkness. But if that's true, then Christians must, at some point in their lives, ask one pressing, urgent question. Why doesn't the Bible unequivocally condemn slavery? I want to invite you to keep that question in the back of your mind as I tell you another story. One of the most influential authors in my life over the past couple of years is Ta-Nehisi Coates. For the purposes of this story, it's important to know that Ta-Nehisi Coates identifies as an atheist. Now, his most widely read work is the New York Times bestseller, Between the World and Me. This book is a letter that he wrote to his son to describe what it means to grow up black in America today, particularly in the absence of justice for racially motivated police brutality. And while Between the World and Me is his most well-known work, Coates became part of the national conversation when he won the George Polk Award and Harriet Beecher Stowe Center Prize for Writing for his 2014 essay, The Case for Reparations, as published in the magazine The Atlantic. Now, I must tell you 
that the case for reparations is a masterwork of literature. If you have not read it, then I highly recommend it that you take time in the near future to read the case for reparations. As the title suggests, Coates lays out the case for national reparations for African Americans. Now, reparations, as defined by the new Oxford American Dictionary, is the making of amends for a wrong one has done by paying money or otherwise helping those who have been wronged. And black Americans, Coates shows in his essay, have been wronged over and over again throughout our nation's history and colonial history and therefore deserve reparations from the nation that has wronged them. Coates begins his article by telling the story of Clyde Ross, who was born near Clarksdale, Mississippi in 1923. After facing debilitating racism, unabashed theft, and a complete absence of protection from the law in Mississippi, Ross moved north, like many other black Americans, to the city of Chicago in hopes of a better life. He worked hard at Campbell's Soup Factory. He saved up and sought to buy a home in the suburbs of Chicago in 1961. But the banks in Chicago would not offer Clyde Ross a traditional mortgage simply because he was black. So Ross had to find a seller who was willing to personally carry the loan. He found a white seller with a property in North Lawndale and finally at the age of 38, bought his first home. But that first home was a scam. The white seller sold this home to him on contract, which means that Ross had to make every payment on time, and if he missed just one payment, he would forfeit his down payment and all the money he invested in the home up until that point. Not only that, but Ross had to pay for any and all repairs to the home, even though he didn't technically own the home. So when Ross bought his home on contract, it meant that he had all of the disadvantages of home ownership without any of the benefits of home ownership. To keep making payments, Ross took up a second job at the post office, but it wasn't enough. He took up a third job delivering pizza while his wife took up a job at Marshall Field. He and his wife worked an ungodly amount of hours all to make sure they didn't miss one payment. And in the end, they did it. The Ross family paid off that scam of a house, but it took everything they had and left them without any savings, save the house itself. It was later demonstrated how that white seller who sold the home to the Ross family ended up targeting several other black families. He acted as a predator and profited unjustly by being a tyrant of real estate. Ross and the other buyers from the suburb of Chicago are a specific incident of racism, but Coates goes on to show that they are not an isolated incident of racism. From that story of Clyde Ross, Coates systematically went through the federal government's weaponization of the housing market in suburbs and the push to racially segregate neighborhoods. Coates tells the story about how the federal government offered FHA loans for homes to white citizens, but denied those same loans to black citizens. He discusses how assessors of properties lowered the value of homes in suburbs 
if a black family simply moved into that home's neighborhood. He also details the harrowing evil of widespread blockbusting. Blockbusting is when white buyers would pay black people to walk through white neighborhoods, which would essentially and unjustly lower the value of the homes in that neighborhoods so that those white buyers could then buy at a lower price. Coates also opens the door to show how redlining consistently shaped the neighborhoods that all of us live in today, even though almost all of us are unaware that redlining ever occurred. All of this racism in real estate was done to create a wealth gap between white America and black America. And Coates shows how it was all done intentionally. Coates even cites research that explains that white households are worth roughly 20 times as much as black households today. His exact words are, quote, discriminatory laws reached their apex in the mid 20th century when the federal government, through housing policies, engineered the wealth gap, which remains with us to this day, close quote. And while we may be living with the consequences of this wealth gap today by policies instituted from yesteryear, these same racist yesteryear policies are still being enacted today. In the past 20 years, Wells Fargo Bank targeted and exploited black Americans with subprime loans, which led to massive housing evictions after the housing crash in 2008. This housing crash affected people of color far more than white Americans. Beyond the oppression through the housing market in America, Coates also discusses how black Americans are still suffering today due to the heinous slave trade and the horrific practice of deliberating separating families for profit. Also, the suffering caused by the destruction of thriving black economies, including the white supremacist mob who attacked Black Wall Street in Tulsa in 1921. Coates also discusses the suffering inflicted by white men who, when the law would not discriminate against black Americans for them, took the law into their own hands and formed violent mobs that burned down houses and bullied black citizens into moving away from what they thought was their neighborhoods. For all of these injustices, Coates says that the country should prioritize making things right through the process of reparations. And a common misconception about reparations is that reparations are without precedent. So Coates tells stories about reparations and the life that was discovered after reparations were handed out. He tells the story of Belinda Royale, who was kidnapped in modern-day Ghana and sold into slavery as a child. Belinda survived the treacherous voyage across the Atlantic where a British loyalist, a man named Isaac Royale, paid for her contract and subsequently enslaved her in the colony of Massachusetts. After 50 years of working for Isaac Royale without pay, Isaac Royale fled from America to Britain at the start of the Revolutionary War. Belinda Royale, free for the first time, petitioned for monetary reparations for the 50 years of unpaid labor she was forced to give to the Royale estate. The courts heard her case and granted her a pension of 15 pounds.
Another story of reparations happened a few decades after the life of Belinda Royale. John Randolph, Thomas Jefferson's second cousin, willed all of his enslaved men and women to be free upon his death. He gave every enslaved man and woman of his estate, who was over the age of 40, 10 acres of land. And he wrote in his will, quote, I give and bequeath to all my slaves their freedom, heartily regretting that I have been the owner of one, close quote. And then on a global stage, West Germany paid reparations to the nation of Israel for all of the horrors of the Holocaust. The signing of these reparations now were extremely controversial. The overwhelming majority of Germans did not feel that they should have to pay for a wrong that they did not personally commit. The majority of Jews were worried that these reparations might serve as a payoff for the Holocaust, and the rest of the world would encourage them to forget about the deaths of the six million Jews that occurred. But despite the controversy, in 1952, delegates from West Germany and from Israel entered a common room from separate doors. Not a word was spoken between the parties as the documents were signed. And after all the paperwork was done, both parties left as quietly as they entered. The West German government gave the nation of Israel billions of dollars. The Israeli government poured that reparation money into infrastructure and shipping. And that investment of reparation monies directly fueled the robust economy that Israel enjoys today. Reparations are precedented, both within our borders and beyond our borders. Which brings us to how reparations are being discussed today in our own systems of government. In 1989, John Conyers from Michigan, who served in the House of Representatives for 42 years, brought to the floor of Congress Bill H.R. 40. This bill proposed a commission to study reparation proposals for African Americans. This study would give Americans the ability to analyze and discuss the cost and emotional work that reparations would require. And in 1989, Conyers introduced this bill, and this bill was handily defeated. In 1990, Conyers brought back H.R. 40 to the Congress floor, and it was defeated again. He brought it back in 91, 92, 93, and so on and so forth every year until 2017 when he retired. For 28 years, Conyers asked Congress to commission a study to see if reparations were possible and what it might cost. And for 28 years, Congress said they weren't interested in studying reparations. Nkechi Taifa, one of the founders of the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, talked about why this bill cannot get through Congress. She said, quote, It's because it's black folks making this claim for reparations. People who talk about reparations are considered left lunatics, but all we are talking about is studying reparations. As John Conyers has said, we study everything. We study the water. We study the air. Why can't we even study the issue of reparations? This bill, H.R. 40, 
does not authorize one red cent to anyone. Close quote. Conyers retired in 2017, and since his retirement, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee from Texas has picked up the mantle and introduced H.R. 40 to Congress every year, including just a few weeks ago in January of 2021. And this week of February 15, 2021, the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties is set to hear testimony on H.R. 40 once again. In his article, Coates writes about the fierce opposition America offers in response to the proposition of merely studying what reparations could look like. And Coates offers his own suggestion. He writes, quote, The idea of reparations is frightening, not simply because we might lack the ability to pay. The idea of reparations threatens something much deeper. It threatens America's heritage, history, and standing in the world. Reparations, by which I mean the full acceptance of our collective biography and its consequences, is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. Reparations beckons us to reject the intoxication of hubris and see America as it is, the work of fallible humans. What I'm talking about is more than recompense for past injustices, more than a handout, a payoff, hush money, or a reluctant bribe. What I'm talking about is a national reckoning that would lead to spiritual renewal. Reparations would mean the end of scarfing hot dogs on the 4th of July while denying the facts of our heritage. Reparations would mean the end of yelling patriotism while waving a Confederate flag. Reparations would mean a revolution of American consciousness, a reconciling of our self-image as the great democratizer with the facts of our history." Close quote. This article was a landmark in shifting the national conversation about reparations for African Americans in our country today. Ta-Nehisi Coates won awards for this article. He was invited to testify and testified before Congress on behalf of H.R. 40. And his essay served as a major turning point in Americans' collective attitude toward reparations. This article has been both embraced and dismissed as leftist propaganda, as being politically out there, as just far too radical, and also as revolutionary. But the thing that struck me when I read this article and its bold vision for the future is that the very first words of Tennessee Coates' article is a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. Yes! Deuteronomy. Remember, Tanahesi Coates is an atheist. And yet here he cites, from the King James Version no less, the following words, which begin the entire article, the case for reparations. The words are, quote, And if thy brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. And when thou sendest him out free from thee, thou shalt not let him go away empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock and out of thy floor and out of thy winepress. Of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. And thou shalt remember 
that thou wast a bondsman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore I command thee this thing today. Close quote. In the case for reparations, we have an atheist quoting scripture. But unlike the billboard in Harrisburg, something different is unfolding here, isn't it? Here we have a verse quoted from Deuteronomy to kick off one of the most influential articles of the 21st century. Tennessee Coates reads and then cites that verse in his article in 2014. And if Moses actually said these words, then that means that these words were uttered somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,500 years ago. But rather than viewing this standard that Moses sets forth as a regressive ethic, Coates owns the Bible passage. He champions the words of Moses. He holds up the scripture as a way forward for our society. He suggests that if we followed the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, then we would discover long-lasting implications of justice for centuries to come. Tennessee Coates cites the Bible because he believes that this passage is a progressive ethic. And an ethic is progressive when it can serve as a guide to lead us into greater morality in the future. In other words, Coates looks at this passage in the Bible and starts off the case for reparations by suggesting that we would be so much better off in the future if we actually followed this commandment from Moses today. The contrast between Coates citing the passage of scripture and the atheist billboard teaches us something about the Bible. The Bible is filled with regressive morals, but the Bible is also filled with progressive ethics. What we need as we approach scripture is wisdom and discernment to help us understand which ethics put forth in scripture are progressive and which are regressive. And when we do our best to determine what is right, I have found it helpful to ask myself when I study the Bible, is this ethic leading us forward into greater morality or backwards into less morality? And if this passage somehow came true today, would it bring about greater justice greater equality and greater righteousness? Or if it came true today, would it bring about more division, more separation of wealth, and more hatred? Because when it comes to the ethics of enslaving human beings, we find that whether we like it or not, the Bible contains both regressive ethics and also progressive ethics. A few moments ago, we asked, why doesn't the Bible unequivocally condemn slavery? I've asked myself this question hundreds of times. And let me tell you what I have discovered. While everyone knows that the first book of the Bible is Genesis, what many people do not know is that Genesis serves as a prequel to the true origin story of Israel, which is the book of Exodus. In Exodus, we are introduced to the Israelites, who have been enslaved for 400 years by the nation of Egypt. 
While it's easy to say enslaved for 400 years out loud, the thought of 400 years of slavery should crush any human being who contains even a sliver of empathy. Generation after generation of Israelite was born into slavery. They married in slavery. They gave birth in slavery. They held their grandchildren in slavery and they died in slavery. They kept going forward because they had hope. Hope that slavery would one day be brought to an end and that their children might be the generation that is finally free. In their plight, they cried out to God, begging for reprieve. And then, miraculously, God responded to their prayers. With a mighty hand, God liberated the Israelites from the Egyptians in Exodus 12. And in the very next chapter, Moses comes forward with bread and speaks to the newly freed Israelites. The first thing Moses gives them on behalf of God in their free lives is a festival of remembrance, the festival of unleavened bread. Every year, Moses wants the Israelites and their descendants to eat unleavened bread for one purpose. He says, quote, remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you out from there by strength of hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten, close quote. I think what's interesting about this festival is that after liberation occurs, Moses is primarily concerned that they will one day forget that they were enslaved. So before the Israelites receive any commandments, before they defeat the Egyptians in battle, before they get anything else, the Israelites get a ritual designed to help them remember. One day, Moses senses that these people will be tempted to forget that they were once enslaved men and women. And if they forget that they were once enslaved, then they may be tempted to build their economy and their society by enslaving one another. A few chapters later, after crossing the sea on dry land, Moses receives the Ten Commandments, carved by the very finger of God. Now, it's here that we return to our question, why doesn't the Bible unequivocally condemn slavery? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if one of the Ten Commandments said, thou shalt not enslave thy brother or thy sister? To which I would say, yeah, it would be nice, which is exactly why a ban on slavery is part of the Ten Commandments. Let's read the first commandment. We read, quote, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, close quote. I mean, take a moment and read that commandment again. While most Christians today interpret this commandment to mean that you should only worship the God of the Christian religion, I have found that interpretation to be restrictive and a reduction of who God actually is. Instead, when God identifies herself to the Israelites in this commandment, she says, I'm the thing, I'm the essence, I'm the miracle, I'm the community, I am the hope that brought you out of slavery. 
That's who I am. And you should never worship another God in any other form before that. Any God who might cause you to enslave another human being is not me. Do not worship the God of unbridled power. Do not worship the God of a strong economy. Do not worship the God of white supremacy. Now, toward the end of Exodus, God expresses a desire to live among God's people. God asks Moses to construct a house for God, which will be known as the tabernacle. Now, God explains why God wants a house to live among the Israelites in chapter 29, when God says, I will dwell among the Israelites and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, this architecture in Exodus is meant to serve as a reminder to the Israelites forever that God brought them out of slavery and that action is the very essential character of who God is. Decades pass. God constantly reminds the Israelites that they were once slaves. Moses reminds them that they were once slaves. And then we come to the book of Deuteronomy. And this book of the Bible contains a nearly four-hour-long sermon given by Moses to the Israelites right before Moses dies. Last week, we talked about the opening section of the 15th chapter of this book. Moses says, every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts. This, my friends, is an aggressive economic plan for the soon-to-be-formed Israelite society in the Promised Land. But what Moses is trying to do here is transform the spiritual posture of these Israelites. He says a few verses later, quote, If there is any among you who are in need, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending them enough to meet their need, whatever it may be. Close quote. So Moses sees the Israelites, whose parents and grandparents knew nothing but slavery, and they are about to enter a promised land and receive more blessings and wealth than they have ever known. And yet he senses anxiety. He sees that these Israelites are worried that they will not have enough. So he invites them to quit living with a posture that is akin to a clenched fist and instead to welcome the life that is to come with a posture of open hands. My friends, spiritual maturity is living with open hands. And this posture can lead us toward greater generosity, which is exactly what we talked about last week. However, the posture of open hands does not end with generosity, but continues into the next couple of verses when we discuss matters of justice. Because right after encouraging the Israelites to live with open hands, we encounter the verses that Ta-Nehisi Coates quotes millenniums later in the Atlantic. Moses says, If a member of your community, whether a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and works for you for six years, in the seventh year you shall set that person free. Close quote. While there was some debate as to whether or not white Christians who enslaved black men and women should follow this, 
there is little evidence or record of any white Christians actually keeping this biblical command and releasing their enslaved humans every seven years. Moses continues in Deuteronomy, quote, And when you send a male slave out from you, a free person, you shall not send him out empty-handed. Provide liberally out of your flock, your threshing floor, and your winepress, thus giving to him some of the bounty with which the Lord your God has blessed you. Close quote. While Moses does not condemn slavery outright, he unequivocally condones reparations outright. For Moses, reparations for former slaves are not optional. Now, this is not economically convenient for anyone who is hearing the sermon in Moses' day. So Moses needs to provide justification for why reparations are mandatory. And do you know how Moses justifies reparations? He calls them back to the very identity of God. He calls them back to the festival of unleavened bread. He calls them back to the first commandment. He calls them back to the tabernacle and says, quote, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. For this reason, I lay this command upon you today. Close quote. My friends, we must never divorce our understanding of God from the liberation of human beings from bondage as attested to in the book of Exodus. When we forget that which Moses told us to remember, we run the risk of denying the essential character of God. When we tell the story of God from the perspective of the slave owners rather than the enslaved persons, then at that moment we are telling the story of the gods of the empire of Egypt rather than the story of the God of liberation and the Israelites. In that moment, we run the risk of our religion being co-opted by greed, co-opted by profit, and co-opted by capitalism. Instead of being a testament to humanity, a testament to justice, and a testament to love. This is why Moses keeps telling his people even moments before his death, remember that you were slaves. Remember that God hears the cries of the oppressed and that the very character of God always works for their liberation and for their equality. And when we consider the Bible from this perspective and the urgency in Moses' tone, and we return to our original question, which is, why doesn't the Bible unequivocally condemn slavery? And eventually we arrive at the answer that this isn't the most important question we can ask. Because the Bible is filled with progressive and regressive ethics on slavery. And we could go round and round about why there isn't a consistent stance on abolition in Scripture. But the fact is that's a nuanced question that ultimately doesn't know why exactly that occurred. Instead, I found that there are much more important questions to ask when we discuss the ethics of slavery in the way that it pertains to the Bible. Questions like, why didn't white Christians follow the law of Moses 
and liberate their slaves every seven years here in America. Another question we must ask is why didn't white Christians follow the law of Moses and pay reparation to those human beings that the government forced them to emancipate? Another question, why didn't white Christians follow the law of Moses and instead sought reparations for themselves from the government rather than reparations for their former slaves from the government? Another question, why are white Christians opposed to our country merely studying reparations to African Americans today when we have this passage in Deuteronomy? Shouldn't people of the word be the ones advocating for the study of reparations for African Americans? And then we arrive at the most important question that I believe we can ask in regards to Deuteronomy 15. Does Moses' law for reparations for former slaves have an expiration date? Because the number one argument against reparations from white citizens in America today is, well, look, I didn't enslave anyone. I'm not sure why my taxes should go to paying reparations. But if you're a Christian and you read this passage and you can recognize that in American history, white Christians never sought to follow the command of Moses, never sought to give reparations to the emancipated slaves, then all of a sudden, following this commandment in 2021 becomes an urgent matter, doesn't it? So in this matter of justice today, when it comes to reparations for descendants of slaves, I believe that all of Christianity should walk forward with a posture of open hands to right one of the most terrible wrongs in the history of America that has been centuries in the making and continues to be made today. An atheist started off his bold vision for a spiritual renewal of America by quoting the book of Deuteronomy. He did this because he believed that there's wisdom in the book of Deuteronomy that the conventional tradition of Christianity has missed. May we miss it no more. May we unapologetically return to the commandments of Moses. May we look at the core of this radical invitation from Moses and may all of us approach matters of justice with open hands. And may we work boldly to right that which is wrong as we seek to see and embrace Jesus Christ at all in our reconciliations and in our reparations. Amen.